Hey, this is Jim, and you're listening to the podcast edition of the Jim Toth Show. Hear us live weekday afternoons from 1 till 3. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Manitoba reported its first COVID case on March 12th. It was then he knew it was unavoidable. There would be many, many more. It seems like kind of a lifetime ago. Um, I remember having kind of this sense of, uh, you know, sitting on on a beach watching the incoming tsunami that we knew was inevitable. You felt kind of helpless, uh, just waiting, not knowing what to expect. And that's a doctor talking about the beginning of COVID two years ago on March the 12th. Five days ago was the first, five days was the two-year anniversary of the first case of COVID-19 in the province of Manitoba. The day before that, six days ago from today and two years prior was when the World Health Authority or uh, who announced it as an official pandemic. Welcome to the show, everybody. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining me. A bit of a different start today because this first half hour, we're going to do a panel discussion about the two-year anniversary that did pass uh, about a week ago or less than a week ago on the COVID-19 pandemic becoming a global pandemic. Very pleased today to welcome in, uh, whom you heard in that story, global TV senior anchor and reporter here in Winnipeg, Brittany Greenslade, and Jamie Marocker, network reporter for Global News. Uh, Ladies, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate you taking the time and uh, jumping right into it. Thanks Thanks for having us. Uh, Jamie, I'll start with you. What do you recall of two years ago on March the 12th when, um, and I guess maybe your thought process of this being named a, a global pandemic and then probably understanding that this was something that you would be spending a lot of time covering? Yeah, this was a little bit different for me at the time was eight months pregnant and I was about to give birth to my first child. I was still working and um, I was extraordinarily confused and afraid. And when they announced that there was, um, it was going to be a global pandemic, I was like, how am I going to have a kid? I'm in a global pandemic. So not only was I working on it from the journalistic angle and I was looking at the numbers every day and I was really immersed in what was going on, um, but I also had these different emotions as a, you know, to be brand new parent uh, trying to figure out that whole side of it. So for me, um, it was really scary to cover. I actually was at the airport the very first day, our very first case arrived in Canada at Pearson Airport. And I remember our, our management at the time was like, hey, do you want to go catch this arriving plane from, from Wuhan? And I was like, I, I don't think that I can do it, given what we don't know at that point, right? We didn't know really anything. We were seeing masks at the airport for the first time. Um, so back then, for me, there was a lot of fear. Jamie, that's interesting you say that because I, I did this on the two-year anniversary last week on the show where I, I, I was asking our listeners, I said, you know, what we think of COVID and the pandemic today is way different than we did in those first couple of months. And, and Brittany, I'll bring you in now and, and ask you what you remember of that day two years ago and a, and a couple of days of when it was announced because I equated in my own personal um, uh, recollection to when 9-11 happened like it was announced and and I didn't understand what where we were going what the world was going to look like what this meant for us here in Canada and, and especially here in Manitoba what do you remember of of that day just over two years ago yeah it was really interesting it's a very different experience than Jamie had I mean for us here in Manitoba we were really waiting and watching as 
this was hitting other provinces first. Um, we were seeing what was happening in China. We were seeing what was happening in other countries. And I remember leading up to that first case happening here, we were all waiting and watching and saying, what's going to happen? When's it going to hit here? How bad is it going to get? We started seeing cases popping up in Toronto, in Vancouver. Um, you know, I, my family's in Vancouver, so I started getting worried about my family that, that was there. Um, you didn't really know what it was going to look like here. And we had our first case the day after it was declared a pandemic. And I remember getting that email notification of that very first case. And it was like, okay, it's here. You know, we'd had a couple scares before. Um, we had a potential flight that had landed where we thought that there was um, a number of cases on one of those flights. People had gone on in hazmat suits on that. It, it had turned out to be false. But we were really just sitting and waiting. And it was like, what can we do? What can we do here to, can we do anything to stop it? Can we do anything to slow it? Um, we were really standing by watching it happen around us. Um, I remember my birthday's in March. I went out with some friends that weekend after we had our first case because there was, it, COVID wasn't really here. And we locked down shortly after. And that was the last time I'd been out with a group of people for, for two years. Um, it was those last few days of it feeling still normal here in Manitoba as we were really watching it erupt all around us. I remember not getting an invite to that birthday, but I'll move <laughs> on because it's not about me uh, when we're talking about this. But you mentioned that because mine's in April and I, I haven't celebrated a birthday in, in over two years mm -hmm. because of that. Um, Jamie, it, you had that that weighing on your mind too. And I, I wanted to ask you specifically about the pandemic. Um, You know, when you get this story, you probably understand it's it's going to be a while. It's not going to go away right away. And, and, and all those questions that you're, you're you're asking professionally, you're probably relating to yourself too. So um, how did that start with you both professionally and then personally go, I'm probably going to be covering this and, and worried about safety and the public safety and all the questions that we all had to, to cover, but also for your own situation as well. What, what was that like when you first sort of maybe a week or two in go, well, this is probably going to be what I'm doing for the next couple of months? You know, it's so funny to me because um, very soon after I would say just days after they announced it was a global pandemic, um, our management put me on a work from home because I was so close to giving birth. And uh, I remember calling one of our producers and saying, how long is this going to last? And I felt like it was a valid question. Like, really? Like, are the experts saying how long this is going to last? Are the officials saying how long this is going to last? And now it seems like such a ridiculous question to ask, given like what we've learned about, you know, um, viruses, viral evolution, um, pandemics in general. I look back and I can't believe that I even asked that question. But I know for the entirety of the pandemic, the big thing has been, when will this end? Um, I was soon off in, in April of that year. I was off for a year because I was on mat leave. And I thought by the time that I came back that perhaps, um, it would start to wind down, but I very quickly started to realize that I would be coming back. I was coming back in a new role as our national health reporter, and uh, this would be my day-to-day. -day. Not only was it my day-to-day, -day, it changed everything about my maternity leave and, and you know, um, how my child has a relationship with the outside world, and she's so used to masks, and, you know, she thinks they're totally normal and that sort of thing, but it would also change um, my career as a journalist. And, you know, now I cover it every single day, pretty much. It's, it's um, ingrained in every portion of my reporting. Um, it is, it's changed the way 
not only we report, but it's changed the way how we, that we interact with officials, how we get information, how we do interviews. So it's not just, you know, looking at the coverage. It's also looking at how we cover different things and our ability to cover different things that have changed. But to your point, um, in the beginning, I definitely did not think that two years in, um, this would still be our day-to-day. But, I mean, I still think that we've got a long time before we stop talking about this. Yeah, and, and Brittany, I wanted to ask you too, was there a point, like, do you remember a time, a date, months, year, year and a half, at any point where it just became, because to me, you're both in, in industry or, or are covering stuff that, you know, you, you do follow stories, but you move on to every different things almost daily. Uh, to me, I, I being a sports background, I'm like, well, when the hockey season starts, I just know predominantly five, six days a week, I'll be at the rink for months on end. Was there a point where it came like that for you, Britt, where it became, okay, well, this is actually going to be something I'll be working on probably, if not daily, weekly for sure. I, I don't know if I can pinpoint an exact moment, but I mean, we were having like, like many provinces, we were having that scheduled daily briefing for COVID daily uh, at, it was a one thirty at one point and then 1230. And I was assigned to that every single day. So you knew exactly what you were doing, what you were covering. You just didn't really know what was going to come out of that briefing. Were we going to have a new set of cases? Were we going to have a, a huge surge? Were our hospitals going to be inundated? Was it a new variant? We just, we really didn't know day in and day out. But what was so interesting to me, and I think is how I realized this, <laughs> we were going to be covering this for so long is we started seeing how much people were invested in it. Um, we get, you know, we get feedback from our stories all the time. Viewers that send us tweets, they send us emails. We get phone calls to the newsroom. People get invested in a story. But that twelve thirty COVID daily briefing, um, people were involved. They were interested. They were impacted. I don't think we've ever had people tune in every single day for a live press conference streamed. If we didn't stream it one day or we had an issue, people would, you know, get kind of angry saying, why aren't you streaming it? There was such a craving for information from everybody. Um, people wanted to know what was happening, what was going on, how they were going to be impacted, what public health orders were coming down, how things were changing. And We've certainly never seen that in a story, especially for something this long. You know, as journalists, and Jamie knows this, we get thrown into a situation. It could be for a day. It could be for a week when you're covering a tragedy. Um, you're there for the week. You're there covering it. And then you leave. And we've never left throughout any of this. And I don't think any of us had an understanding that two years later, this was still going to be a daily topic for so many of us. And now with public health orders lifting here, that topic is what is next? What does normal look like now? Um, what are we going to be seeing in a week from now, in a month from now? And then the after effects of the stories now is like Jamie said, her, her child has had a very different upbringing so far than many other kids, maybe not seeing family members as often, not getting to go traveling. What are the impacts on all of that from the kids that are growing up in this. This isn't going away. We're going to have the impacts and the stories of this for years to come. And I think that's something I've never experienced in my life. And it's something we started learning really early on. But as much as some people got really tired about hearing of COVID every day, there was such 
a desire for more information. People wanted to know everything we could find out about this virus. Well, it's been more than two years since it was official global pandemic, and we're going to see how this has changed both my guest careers and also where it is going and, and see if there was any positive moments in covering a story of this magnitude that does go on for years from both Jamie Marocker and Brittany Greenside. We do got to take a break on the Jim Toth Show. We'll have some weather, and after the break, we'll be back with more of this discussion on what it's been like to cover a pandemic for more than two years when we come back to 680 CJOB. My mom uh, was a self-described tough old buzzard. She was just so hilarious and just so much fun. People's brothers and sisters and loved ones. She loved to cook and uh, she made a peach cobbler to die for. But at the end of the day, she had a good life. That's what I hold on to. That's some comments from people in a Brittany Greenslade story who lost loved ones 15 months into the pandemic. Jamie Marocker, a network reporter for Global News, and Brittany Greenslade, senior anchor reporter for Global News, joining me again until the bottom of this hour, just talking about what it's been like for more than two years of coverage on the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Brittany, I'll start with you this time. Um, you hear those comments. It's it's not easy as a journalist. You know, you're supposed to report and not let things affect you. But two years of this and all the death and all the illness, um, has it changed you uh, as a journalist uh, covering something like this for this extensively for this long? Oh, I don't think it, it couldn't change you. I mean, um, Jim, I've talked to you a lot about when I was in Humboldt and you were there for a week and you're talking to people and you're immersed in it. And then you leave and you have time to sit with those feelings afterwards. After you've left the story kind of behind your home, you sit with it. The thing is here is there's never been time to just put it behind and sit with it because we're still living it. And the biggest thing for me, I think, as a journalist throughout all this is that we're living it right beside everybody else. You know, normally when you're doing these interviews, some of them you can't understand what somebody's going through. You try your hardest, but it hasn't happened to you. You're being empathetic. You want to share their story. But it's hard to to really feel what is happening because you're not the one living through it. And I think that was the thing with this is we lived through it all. It, it changed my perspective on a lot of things. It changed how I approach stories. Um, you know, we've done a lot of stories with, with victims and families and people who died. And in this case, it just went from, you know, this virus stealing somebody's life, people who didn't get those last moments with their loved ones who were maybe in care homes or were in ICU and they couldn't see them. Um, it, it changed how I approached and spoke to people. And I think um, as a journalist and as a person, just to be more empathetic, more understanding, um, you know, to sit back and listen a little bit more. But we had the same experiences as a lot of people, which I think really made it easier in some cases to understand what people were going through. Um, but I think it just gave you a whole different outlook on life. I mean, we went home right after this was declared a pandemic. I don't think any of us could have told you. I thought we'd be able to do our jobs fully from home um, and what, what we can do and how we can troubleshoot. So, I mean, from, as a, from a person and, and how you approach people, to how we're approaching our jobs just to say, yeah, we can make that work. Let's do a phone call. Let's do this. And, and the stuff we were able to get on air every night, I'm amazed at what we were able to do throughout this two years. And Jamie, for you, has it changed you as a journalist? Have you grown or, or and, and personally, while you're, you're doing this for so long on the same topic? You know what? Um, if you ask any of my friends, I think they would say that me as a journalist prior, I 
I didn't have a ton of empathy. I think my, you know, empathy cup um, had been kind of like spilled over so many times. I'd seen so many things, so many tragic, awful things that I um, sometimes had a hard time, you know, feeling what my subjects or characters were feeling. But COVID has really changed all that. We have been so close to a lot of these stories. We've seen our neighbors, our friends, our family members suffer. Um, it's affected, like Brittany said, so many people around the world, and it has affected me deeply as a journalist and as a person. I think um, it's made me a better journalist for sure, and it's made me a lot more empathetic as a person. And um, watching not only what people who are suffering from COVID have been through, but watching what it's done to, um, you know, it's, it's divided a lot of people. We have to remember that, too. Like, from a scientific, political uh, level, it has divided a lot of people. It's kept families apart. Brittany mentioned that, you know, people have not been able to see their family members for years. In my case, that was definitely true. That was really difficult as well. It has um, bared this insanely heavy burden on our nurses and doctors. Um, and I have seen, you know, them shed tears on the front line. Like, these are really strong people who are at their breaking point uh, because of what's happening uh, around the world, something that's completely out of our control. So it's definitely affected not only how I tell a story, how I interact with people, um, but it's also affected me deeply as a person. I only have about a minute left, but I want to ask you both, and maybe we'll start with you, Jamie, just on has there been any positive moments in this? And I understand that this is not a positive story, and it's not a, a story that's ended by any means. But had there been moments in doing this with, with all the, the death and the illness and everything around it that um, some things have stood out to you? Yes, for sure. If we, I mean, if there is anything to take away from this, it is that, you know, the scientific community came together at an incredible rate. We got vaccines out in under a year. That's miraculous. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about red tape and politics being so horrible, but we also watched the political community kind of come together with the scientific community to remove all that red tape. So we were able to move these vaccines, these life-saving um, medications and, and vaccines through at an appropriate pace and still get through all the checkpoints. Um, that's an amazing thing to come out of this. And I think that's going to save not only a lot of lives in the future when it comes to just COVID, but it's going to change the future of modern medicine. And Brittany, for you, has there been some positive moments? Yeah, the scientific side is one, but for me, it's it's what I take from it about what I appreciate more. Um, I don't live close to my family, but I am very close with my family. So to not see them for an entire year in person was really difficult. Um, and to not be around friends, I'm an extrovert. I appreciate what I have in my life so much more, the people that I have in my life so much more, the moments, the memories. Um, you know, it's not the material things, it's the people and the memories that you can make. And I think uh, we've tried really hard over the past year to, to make up for some of those lost memories and we'll continue to do that. And I just hold my friends, my family, my life um, 
in such high regard now. And I just have so much appreciation for those around me and, and what I have and what I'm fortunate to have. Well, I thank you both immensely. Um, not only for joining me today to discuss what this has been like as a story and as journalists to cover it, but also for all the great work you've been doing covering it and, and the stories you've put out both nationally and locally here. So thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Brittany. I really appreciate it. Um, hopefully we're not doing this a year from now on the three-year anniversary of a pandemic, but uh, if we are, uh, I'd be happy to have you back as well. Thank you for all your great work and thanks for joining me. Take care. Little Metallica kick off hour two on the Jim Toll Show. Look, a lot of texts coming in about Premier Stephenson's comments about her son's hockey team. None of them positive. Heather Stephenson and most of them if not all of them saying she shouldn't have mentioned that um, and even if she did want to do it on social media not in uh, chambers counselors or anything like that so uh, we'll keep those coming in at 780-6868 if you want but um, uh, I feel bad for Tommy actually Tommy's caught in the middle he won a championship and now his mom kind of but she's proud, so that's that's the debate. I get it was the wrong time. That's how I feel about it and should not have been brought up, especially when talking about investigation um, to the death of a woman. Um, and then maybe there, the whole debate on, on text, at least at 7806868, seems to be not a debate at all. It shouldn't even be mentioned um, in chambers. I, I just, look, if you're a proud mom and you want to say something, and, and the gist of it was is to, to mention some positive stuff, I just think it was really the wrong time to do it. That's how I feel. But keep them coming in, 780-6868, all opinions welcome. I do have a tip for pothole driving, too. And my next guest is driving, so I might want to hear this, talking about um, how to keep your car safe and everything else. Brian Smiley of MPI has reached out. He was listening. He said if a mortars hits a pothole and damages their vehicle, they can open a pothole claim. Typically deductible is waived. But if the driver took no defensive action to avoid the pothole, the driver could be at fault, resulting in five demerits for the driver. So keep that in mind um, when uh, the pothole season is upon us. Ken Weeb, Sportsnet.ca, and just all-around good guy, joins me now to talk some jets and is currently in the vehicle. Did you avoid the potholes, sir? Jimmy, uh, I did avoid the potholes, and I did enjoy the uh, Metallica entry music. You know, I uh, am a big fan and have uh, enjoyed them live uh, on a couple of occasions. So... I uh, appreciate that. You gave me just enough time in your preamble to get into the garage. So I have parked the car. There will be no distractions. Though I would have had you on the uh, Bluetooth anyway. So there would have been no distractions. But uh, you have my full and undivided attention, my friend. Safe driving. You enjoy the Metallica. And if I do know you well enough, you've enjoyed the whiskey in the jar a couple times too. So that's good. <laughs> no, uh, uh, actually, whiskey is not my drink. No, of I know that. I know. Not, I was not just... a fan. <laughs> the, the vodka in a jar is not a song yet, so we'll wait for that. Um, let, let's just get into practice. Really good news for the Jets, first and foremost, regardless of what they may or may not do around the deadline, just to have Andrew Kopp back out there. Oh, no doubt, uh, Jim. I mean, obviously we'll get into Andrew's comments uh, in a moment here. But, uh, yeah, very you know, great for him, uh, knowing his uh, medical history and uh, things of that nature. He was buzzing around the ice today. I mean, obviously there was he was held out for precautionary reasons, but the fact that he did not suffer a, a fifth concussion uh, is great news, uh, first and foremost for the player and the person and also for the Winnipeg Jets, uh, given their situation. But yeah, a cop buzzing around on the line with Adam Lowry and Evgeny Svechnikov, and 
uh, that certainly uh, adds to their depth as they try to make this push here over the uh, final 21 games. So now let's get into his comments. I have not seen them yet, Ken, but what did he have to say after practice? Yeah, it was very emotional, Andrew Kopp. Uh, you know, I started off by asking him how the last couple of days were like, and then he got into the, you know, kind of the waiting part. I mean, first and foremost, he talked about his frustration, uh, you know, the helmet toss being down on the ice. And again, there's a ton of thoughts that go pouring through your mind when you take a hit to the head after having one so recently. Um, so for him, I mean, just talk and then having to wait for the results of the test. And I mean, uh, he was fortunate that he didn't have symptoms, but I mean, that now you're, when you've been in that situation, you're on high alert, and every every you know, what, all of a sudden you have pressure in your head, and you know, is it a, you know, is it a headache? No, it's not a headache, and you keep asking yourself how you're feeling. All of a sudden, you have some dark thoughts, and then you wonder if you're okay. But uh, he is doing well mentally and feeling good. And the other part that he talked about, he said, you know, the fact that he was able to take a hit of that magnitude to the head uh, makes him confident in knowing that not every single hit is going to lead to a concussion. So uh, that was first and foremost on his mind, and then when the talk started to shift to the trade deadline, Andrew was very honest, Jim. I mean, speaking openly about at the end of last season, how he was looking for a house, how he wanted to be a guy signing a long-term deal that um, after the, you know, Neil Pionk was the one signed to the long-term deal. And when the Jets brought in Brennan Dillon and, and Nate Schmidt, there wasn't enough room in the pie to get other thing other than a one-year deal. So uh, it, it's interesting, Jim. I mean, in a lot of ways, Andrew was, uh, because he wears his hard in his sleeve and he's very forthcoming. I mean, I wouldn't say that this felt like a farewell, but there was a little bit of that added backdrop to, uh, you know, he's a guy who's so great in his media exchanges, but I mean, this is a guy that legitimately understands that there's a possibility that over the next four days he could be moved. I mean, he didn't say he wanted to be moved. He said he wanted to enjoy as much time as he has left with the jets, whether that's four days or two months or three months, if they want on an extended run. But uh, it was an interesting dynamic for sure. And Paul Stastny also kind of uh, was very forthcoming as being one of those other guys who's had his name uh, in the rumor mill here leading up to Monday's deadline as well. So a lot to pack in in that almost uh, 19 minutes of, of media availability. And, and then Dave Lowry talked about the deadline as well. So uh, interesting interesting day all around at the uh, downtown arena. I did see the comment from Lowry about back in his playing days, he would try to just not be found or not go home <laughs> on the deadline day and there was no cell phone. So I thought that was funny. That being said, Ken, like it, it's a hard sell in my mind to play Boston and maybe even Chicago and then go into that room and go, we've dealt Andrew Kopp for picks, but hey, keep pushing. We can make the playoffs or, or whatever. But that being said, I'm also reminded this isn't the same NHL of even five years ago. Like given those comments today, you would never hear that five years ago from players. So given those comments today, do you think there's a chance where the players in the room would be, hey, it's a business, I get it. And if Andrew Kopp is dealt, they still, you know, go forward and, and push for the playoffs. Like, I, I guess what I'm asking is a team two points out of the playoffs. I'm not so sure that he's not or Stasny not going to be dealt. For sure, Jim. And, and that's the thing. I mean, we have recent <laughs> we have recent memory of this situation because it impacted the Winnipeg Jets. Look no further than 2018 when the St. Louis Blues, the team Paul yes. Stasny was playing for, was two points out of a playoff spot. Uh, and traded Paul Stastny. And, and, and there was an uproar uh, in their locker room, uh, you know, kind of led by, among others, Braden Shen, former Brandon Wheat Kings uh, forward. Uh, he, those guys expressed how ticked off they were about kind of punting on the season when they were that close. But uh, you know what helped them get over that, Jim? 
uh, bringing in Ryan O'Reilly and winning the Stanley Cup the next year. And again, no one's saying that that's going to be the same story here in Winnipeg. But, um, you know, of course, people are competitive. They should be upset. But at the same time, it depends what the returns are being offered. Uh, We know what happened in the preemptive strikes yesterday. It was mostly prospects and picks. The Jets, if they're going to make that deal, Jim, they need players that can help them right now. They need uh, forward help, probably, uh, and guys that can kind of minimize the losses of those two players if they are indeed moved. I know this is a very difficult decision for Kevin Cheveldayoff. Uh, he believes in the group. That's why he put them together. That's why people viewed them as a contender. But, I mean, the math still isn't great for the Jets. So uh, there is an emotional element at play for sure. And I think the other thing that I wrote about in my story today, Jim, at sportsnet.ca, there's a financial component to this. I mean, the Jets haven't sold out one single game this year. Uh, they don't want to be, uh, you know, viewed as, um, you know, quitting on the season. They want there to be a playoff race, and if there could be playoff revenue, that would be impactful for the bottom line for a franchise who, like many others in Canada, have lost a lot of money during the pandemic, during, uh, you know, reduced capacity and no capacity games. So uh, there's that component at play as well. But if the Jets can find a way to, in, you know, expand or extend their window of contention by bringing in players that can help them now along with the potential of adding draft pick capital that is, you know, reduced by two this year so far, I think they have to consider it. I mean, does that mean they'll do it? Not necessarily, but, uh, you know, one of the things they've already said today as well, you're always looking for ways to make your team better. And it's hard to envision the Jets trading those two players and being better immediately. But, you know, there's a guy like David Gutson who can help, you know, offset some of the loss and the two-way play. And, but then you have to bring in a forward that can help the Jets be competitive both this year and in the years beyond. You know, Jake DeBrusque is a guy that I've talked a lot about. He's asked for a trade out of Boston. Uh, do I think it's a one-for-one situation? Not necessarily. But uh, if the Jets could bring in somebody who could be impactful in their middle six, uh, not just a prospect or future help, uh, I think they're going to have to consider it. But again, it all depends on the offers. Is there a bidding war? How do the Jets play in the next two games? I mean, all these things are factors into into what will be a very compelling decision come Monday afternoon. So I know it's purely speculation. This will be my last one for you, but I, I do I agree wholeheartedly. And I think if it is the DeBrusque for Cop, I think you have to kick something in because DeBrusque is an RFA and Cop is a UFA. Um, right. But that being said, when you see what Seattle got for Kale Yarncroft yesterday, the second, the third, and the seventh, and we were debating this on Jets at noon, if the Jets get offered that for Andrew Cop, and it's just picks, but it is a quite the haul. Do they do it in your mind? Yeah, to me, I don't think that's a, a good enough haul for the okay. Winnipeg Jets. And like I said, those guys, I mean, again, it's a great haul, but those guys aren't helping them in this window that includes Hellebuck, Shifley, Wheeler, like what we've talked about. That's right. the, year, the window that expands two, two years after this one, none of those players are going to be in the lineup during that time. It might help them afterward, but to me, you're just giving up too much on the short term. But that's what makes it more complicated, right? I mean, I've also mentioned Owen Tippett as a possibility out of Florida. I mean, that's a guy that, the Jets are positionally not as strong at right wing. It's a big, strong guy that can score. Um, you have to be getting guys like that. I mean, Dominic Kubelik uh, out of the Blackhawks has been mentioned by some of the reporters in Chicago as a guy that's on the block. Jets potentially interested there. And, and just back to the Bruins part, I mean, if Cop would be interested in extending, now all of a sudden it's a different scenario, right? It's not a trade for a rental. It's two guys that are committed uh, and more on the longer term side, and you know maybe the Jets have to throw in one of the defensemen, um, you know help comp, you know reduce the log jam on the back end. But I don't think they can do it just for picks. 
even if it is multiple picks, because Jim, those are just basically lottery tickets, right? So the Jets are trying to remain competitive and, and be a team that competes. And we know that the Colorado Avalanche aren't going anywhere. So, uh, you know, if that's the standard in the central division, having picks that are going to be in the roster potentially in, you know, two or three years doesn't help them uh, in the shorter term. And it may not even help them in the long term. So uh, that's what complicates things even further, but uh, that's why the general manager gets paid the big dollars and, He's got some big decisions ahead over the coming days here. There's no doubt about that. Great stuff. Great insight, Ken. Uh, as he said, his piece, and it's worth your time, is up at sportsnet.ca. And the Kenny and Rennie podcast, a new one, will be out later this afternoon as well. Thanks for doing this, sir. My pleasure, Jimmy. Enjoy the day, my friend. Now, we've been talking uh, some Jets and some golf season around the corner and how the melt is affecting it, but uh, today is a great day in my life. Um, not the highlight of it by any means, but each and every year the March Madness Tournament kicks off, and I absolutely love this tournament. And I know my next guest, uh, the new voice of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, just an all-around great guy too, Derek Taylor, is all about this tournament as well. So he joins me now, and we are going to ask him what his offseason is first as the voice of the Bombers has been like, but first and foremost, DT... How long have you been watching, and what do you love most about the madness? I am trying to think. I remember being in college, and one of the most embarrassing moments of my life was I fell asleep during a final. It was Michigan and North Carolina, which came to be known as the Chris Weber timeout game. I actually took a nap during that game, and I missed the Weber seminal moment in NCAA history. So uh, that takes you back to the, the 90s. It's kind of where I start remembering. Uh, that would have been, what, 93, 94? Uh, that's, where, that's where I start remembering. The old Arkansas, Ed O'Bannon at UCLA, all the way through Tim Duncan, as I thought Tim Duncan was. Is he going to be fast enough to play in the NBA? Oh, he's going to be one of the top 10 NBA players ever? Oh, oops. Well, so, yeah, it's been a long, long time. I've had a lot of bad takes on college basketball pilgrims. You know what I love about that story is the minute you mention that game, I go right back to where I was watching it. I love this tournament. I grew up playing basketball. I was in college, and when that happened at a Boston pizza in Lethbridge, Alberta, many schooners were spilled screaming, did he just call timeout? What is he doing? What's going on? So um, it, that's the beauty of this tournament. So it's it's so great. I, I call it the greatest tournament. The only thing that equates in, in my – and look, we all love the CFL playoffs, the NFL playoffs. We love the Stanley Cup mm-hmm. playoffs and how you have to win 16. But this tournament, and a close second to me, is winning the Memorial Cup because you do four rounds of, of series, and then you get into a round-robin uh, form tournament. So – Anything that's do or die for this many games is outstanding. 68 teams in. Um, it all starts today. Everybody has a reason for liking it, and even the casual fan who doesn't pay attention for filling out a bracket. So we'll just start with you. Uh, who do you like this year to make the Final Four? So my Final Four, it's it's a little chalky, but I'm okay with that. I have Gonzaga and Arizona. They're the top two teams in the nation, so I have them in there. I have UCLA coming out of the East bracket. And I have Auburn, the number two seed, coming out of the Midwest bracket. So two ones, a two, and a four, uh, because I think there's some problems in that East bracket that uh, I thought I might as well just go with with what I know. I like that mix. Um, And maybe let our listeners know, too, how much do you follow college basketball? Like, I watched maybe seven games on a Saturday afternoon throughout a year, no specific team. Uh, This year I haven't. This year I've, I've caught maybe a half of three games. 
but I spend the last two days like pouring over this and, and looking at it. How, how much do you watch? And I know you're the numbers guys. We all do. How much do you pour into this when you fill out your bracket? Well, this season, this season was a little less than my watching. Like when I was hosting the NCAA tournament on TSN, I watched for months yes. and you saw everybody. You're like, Oh, I need to see Wichita state play because they're probably going to win their conference. And I'm going to want to know them two months from now. Uh, those, those were the days when you, when you had time to do that stuff. Oh, those were the days. But the last, since the bracket was announced on Sunday, uh, gosh, it's just been pouring over the numbers and who played who and who beat who and how did they how did they do against top level competition and what how are they in the factors that I think are important in one game upsets as you know Boise State take the take the run at Memphis here uh, just things like that and you just kind of go over it because it would be so hard to keep track of you know 68 teams but there are more than 300 in in, in America that compete to be in this tournament so. And just try to catch up and kind of take educated guesses at this point. You know who the big dogs are, but these little ones that can make or break your bracket, they're, they're fun to dive into. Well, and that was going to be my next question. It's harder and harder for like a 12th or a 10th or a 9th Cinderella story to come through, but it has happened at least until the, the Elite Eight Final Four. Who do you like as a dark horse this year? Is there one or two teams? I, I was thinking about dark horses and – the, the one that sticks out for me, and I feel sort of bad calling the dark horse because they were in the final four last year, is Houston. Uh, once, once again, their team in a smaller conference is, you know, Gonzaga's the one school that's been able to climb out of the, the bias against smaller conferences. But Houston's, you know, smaller conference, but they, they've been here before. They've been in the final four. They have a real tough bracket, right? They'll have to go through Illinois and then Arizona to get to uh, the final, pardon me, to uh, get to the Elite Eight. But Houston is one of those ones, as a five seed, if you're looking for someone to wreck things, I think that's absolutely uh, a way you can go. Before what was happening here, I might have said, hey, maybe a Schmeckle on, on South Dakota, but they're not, their three-point shooting is kind of failing them in this one. Um, what else have I got? Honestly, I've got, got threes and fours that I like. I think Iowa's a team that's underseeded for, for how good they can be. And when they meet Kansas in what, uh, what would be a great Sweet 16 matchup, uh, gosh, some, I guess next Thursday, Friday. Iowa's a team I like to watch. They can they score very efficiently, and that to me is what you need at this time of year. I do like those picks. Um, when you had TSN doing this tournament hosting, how much fun was that? Oh, it was bonkers. Oh, it was, it was fantastic. <laughs> Super stressful, right? Because uh, early on, one game starts, and then another game comes in. So covering two games is no problem, but you know, you're going in and out of halftimes of, okay, well, now we're talking about Norfolk State and Baylor. Jack, what did you like for Baylor? And there was only so much you got to see it, right, because of the wall of TVs. But, like, oh, I remember that one shot by that one guy. Uh, it, it was just, it was fantastic. It was just six nonstop hours of basketball, and you're just shooting the breeze and marveling at the, the kid who puts up an audacious 35-footer to try to win the game. It's, it's, it's just a delight. I know, and I ask that solely because I know when you're working, it's it's work too. But I mean, uh, what a pleasure to do something like that. Uh, what have you been doing this off season up until now? I know you're just about to, I believe, move uh, you and Fiona back to the province. Yeah, so I I just came back from the store where I got a lot of boxes to pack some stuff up so we can get it out of the house for the uh, the realtor to come take some photos. We've actually got a vacation planned in between here, so uh, we're we're doing a moving vacation and vacation at the same time kind of thing. So our planning on that has gone absolutely to heck and back. It's, it's don't, don't ever plan those two things at the same time. <laughs> but honestly, I, I'm just trying to also kind of catch back up on 
okay, well, what were the bombers in 2021? And I was looking at some Zach Calero stuff the other day. And, okay, well, okay, well, how does this stack up against these other guys? And just kind of diving in, when I get to a little more, a little less hectic on the other side of vacation, then full bore into, okay, well, well, how was the interior deep offensive line last season, and how will it be different with Drew Desjardins being gone to the Indianapolis Colts? And, okay, they've lost receivers. How will they fill in? Who's going to be that receiver that takes over for Darvin Adams and stuff like that? And just really get down to the nitty-gritty of it so when camp starts, you're, you're full up on what happened the last couple of years, and, and you're ready to see uh, you know, what the future holds. When when does it really amp up for you in an offseason? I mean, I used to ask Bob that too, and he'd say, well, it never really ends, and, and that's what you've done. That great piece that Ed yeah. Tate put out at BlueBombers.com about how you're delving into some of the intricacies of that and how good Zach Claros is at uh, avoiding pressure, getting rid of the ball, avoiding sacks, I should say. Um, but So you're doing that all the time, year-round, but when does it really amp up around uh, how close to training camp for you? Probably within a month or so. You really get get into it because there's new names and you know, the Bombers have signed guys who are new up from America, and they have been undrafted free agents of the Jacksonville Jaguars in 2021. And you go, okay, well, well, what's this guy about? What can I Google on this guy? So everything comes to storytelling come camp time. Because while I'm fascinated with the numbers, there's, you know, you also like the who are the players, you know, behind the helmet, for lack of a better word. So who are they and who have they played with and what have they seen in their time? Because, Toth, I know you feel this too. Uh, getting older, but, you know, fresh new Blue Bombers are staying the same age, right? They're all 25 <laughs> and 26. And the further I get away from 25, 26, I, I wonder what 25 and 26-year-olds are like. And I'm curious to, to meet them and find out what uh, what were the, the big moments in their life. They're way different. Trust me, they're way different. But yes, I, uh, <laughs> I, I feel the same, too. It, it creeps up on you when you're covering teams and, and 15 years go by and all of a sudden you mention something and they're like, who's that? You're like, who's that? Exactly. That's like the most famous rapper you've ever known. And they're, no, it's not. It's this. And you're like, oh, never mind. And they're like, dude, yeah. how old are you? Pretty old. Thanks for talking to me. We'll see you later. Yeah. When, when his favorite player is the son of my favorite player, <laughs> back then, there you go. Well, yeah. well okay. Who, dude, who's okay. Warren Moon? Never mind. I'll move on. Move yeah, on yeah. On. Uh, DT, I really appreciate this. I know you're going to enjoy the madness. Uh, travel safe with the move and enjoy the vacation. And uh, thanks for doing this. We look forward to hearing more from you as we get closer to training camp. Looking forward to it, brother. Oh, wait, wait. Who do you have winning the March Madness? Uh, so, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Gonzaga, UCLA on the one side, Arizona, Auburn on the other side. I have Gonzaga, Arizona in the final and the Zags winning it. They were in the, in the championship game last year. And I just need to see the most Chet Holmgren I possibly can. For folks who don't know, Chet Holmgren, seven feet tall, 115 pounds, it looks like. He is as skinny as can be, but he is skilled and a ton of fun to watch. So watch out for Gonzaga. I was just reading about him this morning, so I'm looking forward to it. I got Gonzaga over Arizona, too, so great minds. Thanks, DT. Thanks, brother. Derek Taylor, voice of the Bombers here on 680 CJOB, his insight on March Madness and what he's doing, getting ready for his first season, calling Blue Bomber games. 